describe me as like his perfect creation um, and that I am who I am because of him. He says that I am courageous. He says that I am full of faith, that I'm righteous. God views me through the lens of Jesus. To be that helping hand and to be that kind person. I think he uh, oftentimes wants to tell me that he loves me just as I am. He loves me right now. I think God describes me as the light of the world. I am loved, I am free, I am saved. God sees me as his child. If he's your father, you're his son or daughter. That makes us brothers and sisters, and I think that's exactly how he sees us, as his, his own, his family. Well, good morning, everybody. Today is a, it's a hard morning. If you were like me, rooting for the home team last night, it's just like I thought I should preach on PTSD. But there's always next year, right? How many of you are Packer fans? I'll be praying for you today. <laughs> we are in the uh, second message of our series on identity. And in this series, we began by looking at why it's so important to believe in the existence of God if we are going to have a sense of purpose in our life, a sense that God has a plan for us. And we looked at the other side, uh, those who don't believe in the God of the Bible, and we allowed them to tell us that really there is no purpose then for our lives, that we are here by accident, so to speak, a collision of molecules and atoms and things like that. This weekend, I want to talk about why it's important for us to understand our identity, our being made by God, and how unique that is to us if we are to know hope in our lives, hope in our families, hope in our society, hope in this world. So we're going to jump right in because we have a lot to cover today. Can't keep up. We'll put some of these things on the blog, and you can follow up with that as well. But I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to look at a word that we're familiar with that's used over and over again in the early chapters of Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, when you jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, so God created mankind, uh, he says, <laughs> okay, so I didn't finish it, I'm sorry. So God created mankind in his own image, all right? The image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now we'll jump ahead to Genesis chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And finally, Genesis 9, 6 Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. It's kind of funny. I was, this is, has nothing to do with the message. But last weekend after one of our services, um, a dear precious lady came up to me. And she said, you do your line straight today. Anyway, uh, I'm glad you all pay attention. But uh, that was a wavy line. But did you notice that in all of of these passages we looked at, there's this continual repetition about 
uh, image and likeness of God. And so the question is, what does it actually mean to be created in the image of God? Is it some little part of us? Is there a God gene in us and that's what's the image of God? Is it our ability to choose? Is it our emotions? Is it our intellect? And the way I would respond is that to be created in the image of God is really about a status that God confers on us. God conferred a status on Adam and Eve and all of the children, and we are their children, if you believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible. And so it's a status that he confers on us that he doesn't confer on any other of his creatures. In that sense, we are very unique. Greg Cockle says that in that sense that after God, we're the most important person, persons in the universe, in God's created order. Think about that. You are the most important person. We are the most important persons after God because only we have that status. And in every aspect of our life, God created us to reflect him. In every aspect. Or as one scholar puts it, and I kind of like this, he says, to be created in the image of God is to understand that we are all imagers of God. We're all imagers of God. You say, well, I love the way that sounds, but I have a problem, Pastor. And the problem I have is that when I look at other people, when I think about my fellow students at school or my neighbors or my coworkers, the people cut me off in traffic, whatever it is, I don't see the image of God in them. And be honest with you, sometimes when I look in the mirror and I, and I just watch myself and think about myself and my behavior and my action, I don't see the image of God in me. Well, that's true. That's because the image of God has been marred in our lives. It's been marred by sin. And next weekend, we'll talk about how that happened and how we can learn from what happened to learn how to live in the image that is ours in God. But this weekend, I, I really want to camp on this whole idea, this whole concept, that we are created in the image of God and why it's important to believe in that if we're to have any kind of hope in this world. Because it's a failure to believe in that that's led to the troubles that we experience in our lives and in our society and in the world around us. And so I really want this to be something that you can understand what's happening in our world so that you can also understand how important it is to own and believe in the fact that God has created us in his image. And I want to start by telling you a story that Tim Keller tells in one of his writings about a friend of his who relayed this to him. This friend said that when he was in medical school, he was going through his, or after medical school, he was going through his residency, and he was making rounds with his peers, and of course, there was a doctor in charge who was leading them, mentoring them. They were discussing the case of a woman who was deeply depressed, and how to treat her and help her with her depression. And Keller's friend announced to his peers, he said, I'm not, I'm not sure that what she needs is medication, I think what she needs is to understand how significant and how important she is and how valued her life is. And they all agreed, but the chief doctor spoke up and he said something which kind of sent a wave through the group. He asked the question of the doctors. He said to them, how do you know that? How do you know that she has value and worth and dignity? He said, we're scientists here. Science says human beings are more complex, but 
There's absolutely no scientific basis for saying you have dignity and value and worth. And that's true academically speaking. There is no scientific basis for saying that you have dignity, value, and worth. So the doctor went on, he said, don't push quasi-religious and religious views on this person. And it kind of shook the world of this, of this young doctor to hear this mentor say that. And as we talked about last weekend, you know, secular humanists who don't believe in God and the God of the Bible tell us that if, if we're honest and, and that's the, the mindset we have, that there is no God and the Bible isn't God's word, that we really have no purpose and no value in life. That we are indeed a result of a random accident where things just came together and collided and we've evolved to this point and we may be complex but we are not special in a sense of anything beyond a biological machine that is born lives dies and that's the end of it and this kind of ideology has been fueled ever since the enlightenment and has gained ground until today it really is the atmosphere that we live in and when i think about our students especially they're inundated by this every day it is a common form of thinking it pervades so much of what they hear and what they're taught and what they see to give us a little bit of a background on how it's kind of emerged, let me just draw for a moment from a famous atheist. His name is Bertrand Russell. He's a brilliant man uh, in his day. He has more degrees than I have time to talk about. But he, he's British. He uh, was a, a Nobel laureate, mathematician, historian, philosopher, and that's just a few of the things. Outspoken atheist. And I want you to listen to what he said. He said, we are the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and the beliefs of our minds are just the outcome, the accidental collocation of atoms. And that is it. So all these hopes and all these fears and all this love and all that stuff, that's just, the, that's just a chemical production in your brain. And we talked last weekend about how philosophers had come along and said, yeah, we have no purpose. We really have no value, but we need a noble lie to all believe in because if all of us really come to terms with, that, with what that means, why have anarchy on our hands? Because as Darwin, you know, shows us, it's survival of the fittest. And I got to do what I've got to do to get ahead. And, and in order to do that, I don't necessarily have to think that you have much value and and." dignity in your life. I can trample on you to get ahead. That's what it ultimately all, all will mean for us. So if you, if you put God out of the picture and, and put his word out of the picture, that's the conclusion you arrive at. But there's a contradiction in our culture. Listen carefully. On the one hand, we're told we're just machines, that we've evolved and we have no dignity, worth, or value, if we're going to be honest with each other. Yet, the same people who tell us that write books and have classes and seminars telling us how valuable and how worthy and how important every individual is. They're like, what, what's that all about? 
Scientifically, you say this, but then psychologically, you want to tell me that. What, what is the truth? Why is that endemic in us? Why is it that we have this sense that we have value and worth? Why can't we get away from it? Why can't we walk into our bookstores or go online and see books that keep telling us how worthless and valueless we are? Why do therapists keep telling us we're important and we're significant? Why don't they just tell us, yeah, you are an accident. Tough luck. Way it goes. It's because there is a God, and he put that in us. And we are his image created by God. Listen, when the Bible talks about being created in the image of God, it's not just talking about believers. Everybody's been created in the image of God. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you might be thinking, well, I thought this whole idea of human dignity, worth, and value was a Western thing, that we came up with it here in America. I'm sorry, but we didn't. Some people say, well, isn't it the Greeks that came up with it? No, it's not the Greeks. Aristotle is the one who said, you know, some people are born to be slaves. You'd be surprised at who would tell you where it's come from. Take Brian Tierney, for instance. He's now passed on, but he was a uh, a well-known scholar, Professor Cornell, professor of medieval history. I, I tell you these people, and I talk about them because I just want you to understand where the world's coming from. He probably has proven, in essence, through his writing and his research, that the idea of morality, of, of the high view of people, comes from the Bible, he says. Comes from the Bible. That is the Bible that influenced European uh, jurisprudence and culture and thought. Or take uh, the French philosopher Luthery. He was writing a book on atheism, and in writing the book on atheism, he says, you know, we owe it to the Christians. They're really the ones that have infused society with the sense of dignity and the sense of worth and value. In fact, he says, we are all, and the Christians say, we are all brothers and sisters on the same level as creatures of God. Richard Rorty, another brilliant philosopher, graduate from the University of Chicago, prestigious school in some place called Yale, <laughs> taught at Princeton, taught at the University of Virginia, taught at Stanford, smart guy, atheist, writes, and in his writing admits the fact, he says, Christianity gave rise to the concept of universal rights derived from the conviction that all humans are created in the image of God. Next weekend, I'll talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, who led his, the movement, one of the great American heroes, based on the conviction that all people are equal and created the image of God. But you come back here, he goes on, he says, however, in the modern age, due to Darwin, we no longer accept the idea of creation. Therefore, we are no longer morally bound to maintain that everyone who is biologically human has equal rights. Whoa, did you hear that? If we're not created, if there is no God, we're not bound that everybody has to have equal rights. Remember, survival of the fittest. Now, I at least appreciate that he's being intellectually honest. He's saying, if you believe this presupposition, here's where you're going to end up. And see, that's what a lot of us fail to do. So many times we will, we will claim to believe in something, we'll get in a certain camp and say, I'm for this, and we never think through 
What, where will it go? What will it result in? You should never believe in anything, including Christianity, till you've gone all the way through and said, this is what it's going to result in. That's just intellectual honesty, right? To be able to do that. There's so many people in society, and I would suggest there's so many of our, our, our young people, our young adults, who, who name and claim a certain belief or a certain philosophy, and they never think it through all the way. And you know what's scary? And this is the only service that this came to mind to mention, so maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit's leading this, I don't know. But you know what's scary is this, is the generation now, they don't care. It does not matter if it's illogical. It's what I feel and believe right now. And that's what matters, and that is scary. And that's dangerous. And I feel like we're, you know, I feel like increasingly we're kind of buying into that mindset you see, if you deny God and you deny the scriptures, please listen carefully. If you deny God, the creator, and you deny that we're all created in the image of God, you invite harm and you invite all kinds of injustice in society. And all you got to do is look around and you see the evidence of that. Let's talk about it for a minute. Just, this is just looking at modern history and by the way, when I say this, I, I, I'm going to be the first one to admit to you that Christians who are not either real Christians or who are way off base are very hypocritical sometimes with this. That is, they don't do what they preach. And you're about to see it in just a moment. But let's just talk about the Holocaust for a moment. Six million Jews. How does that happen? The only way the Holocaust can happen is you have to deny the God of the Bible or you have to twist what the God of the Bible has said. You have to deny certain people their dignity and the fact that they've been created in the image of God. Well, let's bring this home a little bit closer. Let's talk about the whole issue of slavery in this country. How can that be justified? The only way you can justify slavery is either you have to change who God is in the Bible and change what his word says, which is what happened in many of the churches of that day. You've got to basically push God out and push his word out to justify taking people because of the color of their skin or where they have come from and somehow labeling them subhuman in order to enslave them. Where does that all come from? It only comes when you push God out of the picture and you begin that movement and justify what you do by saying those people don't deserve the same right. Isn't that the issue behind racism? I mean, that, that's what feeds racism is this idea that I get in my mind and the bizarre thing is the capacity for some who call themselves Christians to redefine God and make God say what God never said, reinterpret the scriptures in a way the scriptures never meant to do it because it feeds our need. Listen, here's what's bizarre. It feeds our need to feel better about ourselves. If I can put another group down, then I can feel better about myself. If I can put another group down, I can justify my evil intent, my sinful behavior. And, and it breeds that. You see what I'm saying? But if I see God for who he is, if I let God be himself, if I let God speak through his word, if I let God just be who God wants to be, it just, it's a different world. It's a different life. It's, if I treat you the way God talks about you, it's a different world. It's a different life than what we're experiencing these days. How about sex trade? I mean, my goodness, how do you take girls... 
and even our own country, and how do you sell them? And boys as well, but mostly girls. How do you do that unless somehow you've justified in your mind they don't have the same dignity, the same equality, the same right, that they are somehow not creating God's image? You've got to do something to God and do his, away with his word or just not believe in him to get to that place. Now, what I want to say next, I want to say carefully, and, you know, some people are going to say you're being political, and, you know, just because our world makes it a political issue does not mean it's political. I want, I want to say first, though, I thank God that he's a merciful, loving, and forgiving, and gracious God. Don't you? Amen. If it was not for his grace, I wouldn't be here today. So when I mention abortion, I want you to know that if you've been there, if that's happened in your life, I want you to know that God loves you and God does forgive you as much as he loves and forgives me. I'm not better than you. We've both been saved by his grace. We still have to come, to come to grips with why 61 million babies have been aborted in our culture, in our country. I mean, how do, you, how do you get there as a modern intellectual society? The only way you get there is you have to devalue human life. You have to come to the point where you say either God does not exist and his word isn't right, or you have to reinterpret God because he's old-fashioned and needs to be brought up to date. And all I'm trying to do is I'm just simply saying, look at the evidence, and I've only named a bit of it, and you see how all around us, when God's put out of the picture, or God is dismissed, this is where we end up, and it's not a good place to be. Because listen carefully. If I get to that place where I devalue life, then what happens is I get to begin to play God and decide who has life and who doesn't have life. And that's scary. Nancy Piercy, who's a Christian intellect, wrote a book called Love Thy Body. Not easy to read, but you might want to check it out. Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy. We'll put it on the blog. But in that book, she says, the debate today is no longer when do you become a human being. Most people, she says, even secularists believe that, yes, at moment of conception, you're a human being. The question today is when do you become a person? called personhood theory. And she said, there's all kinds of debate about what is it that makes you a person? So a lot of the things, and I'll, I'll just do three of them, are, for instance, you're self-conscious. You are able to make good and rational decisions. You can contribute to society. Now, let me just stop with those three. If you just take those three, Boy, there's a whole lot of people that you could say are not persons and don't deserve to live outside the womb, infanticide, euthanasia, the elderly, people with special needs. I mean, once you put God out of the picture and his word out of the picture, somebody has to step in and fill the void. Somebody begins to decide who's really a person and who's not. And that's part of what contributes to so many of the things I just shared with you that have happened in modern in modern history. As Andrew Walker, the ethicist, says, the greatest crimes in our world result from denying God's image in every single person. The greatest crimes in our world result from denying the image of God in every single person. So the question becomes, what do we do? What do I do? What do you do? How do we... How do we Work through this. And I just want to touch on it briefly. Number one, 
I want you to think about a mirror for a moment. You know, we use mirrors. How many of you looked in the mirror today? Yes. How many of you were told to look in the mirror today? <laughs> Why do we look in the mirror? We look to see our reflection, to see what's going on with us, right? But let's take an old-fashioned, plain, old, simple mirror. If you put a mirror in, the, in a pitch-dark room and you walk in to see yourself in it, you won't see a thing, will you? Because mirrors need a light on them in order to reflect back your image. So the question I want to ask is, how, how should we see ourselves? In what light should we see ourselves? And listen carefully, in what light should I see you? Now, because I've talked a lot about this already and, and talked a little bit about it last week, and I won't belabor it because there's something else I want to get to, but, but first of all, I need to see myself and others in light of the Word of God, in the light of the Word of God. James chapter 1 says this, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself or herself goes away and immediately forgets what he or she looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, the mirror, the Word, that gives freedom, he says. Boy, the Word gives freedom. And continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You say, I, I love the way it sounds, Pastor, but I mean, when you look at God's Word, a lot of times it shows you how sinful you are and how bad you are. Well, let's stop for a moment. Why do you look in the mirror? A lot of times you look in the mirror to make sure everything's put together the right way. I never have to worry about my hair, but anyway, some of you do. <laughs> you know, is there peanut butter on my face? You know, because I didn't get it wiped off at breakfast. It's a dried egg in my mustache. That's gross. And what do we do when we see it? We wash it off, right? We clean it up. Well, God's Word's the same way. It's like, look, let me, yeah, let me show you the blemishes so you, so, so you can let me cleanse them. I, I want to I show you your sin because I want to forgive it. But then God's Word says so many wonderful things about who we are in Christ. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You're special. You're unique. You're loved. He's giving you gifts and abilities. Oh, my goodness. Start reading God's Word and start really seeing yourself and start seeing other people in light of God's Word as well. But here's what I want to camp on. This is a big deal, especially for our students who are here. The other light that I need to see myself in is, with it, is, is the light of community. The other light I need to see you in is within the light of the community. Nobody comes out of the womb and makes their own life. does not happen. Every one of us is a result of how others look at us and others speak about us. So you students, you're like bread dough. You're being shaped. You're like clay that's being shaped. And you know who's shaping your life? And it never stops for those of us who are adults. Till we die, there are people constantly trying to create us in their image. Always influencing us by what and how they think we ought to be and how we ought to live our lives. And we will listen to those voices all day long instead of listening to the Creator's voice. Let, let me just, I, I drew out some examples here. For instance, parents shape our lives. Early on, parents have the most say, don't they? So, my goodness, as parents, i got to make sure that I help my child see themselves in the light of what God wants them to be, not what I want them to be. I need to call out the values in their life, how I see them, not how society sees them. 
after that, it's peers. And the older you young parents, listen to this, the older your kids get, they're going to listen less to you and more, more to their peers. So our peers, the kids we hang with, they shape and have an awful lot to say about how we live and how we think and how we act and how we feel about ourselves and each other. Teachers, coaches, thank God for the great teachers and coaches at Wooddale Church, but there are a lot of teachers and coaches out there who don't have the same philosophy, same worldview, and so they shape by their ideas of what your child should be like. Or how about pop culture, the media? and politicians, and all the voices that come streaming in through videos and, 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 and video games, and our coworkers, and people that we hang with and do business with, all those voices are feeding into us, and we live in a tribal world. We live in a tribal world that tries to inform us, and we're all looking for a tribe to belong to. Why do we want to desperately belong to a tribe? Because we desperately long to know that our life matters, we have worth and value. We desperately long for that, and we will go to whoever will give that to us. Even as Christians, we're still bent at times to want to seek value and appreciation by others. And the people who pay attention to the most to us are the ones we gravitate towards, right? But there are always dues that you have to pay to become part of a tribe. So I want to belong to this income tribe that, that lives this lifestyle and has these kinds of things. Well, what dues am I going to have to pay to climb the ladder to get that place to where I fit in with the white-collar culture? Or what dues do I have to pay to be part of the blue-collar culture, the blue-collar tribe? I belong to the dirty-collar tribe. Isn't that funny I mean, that we, how we talk, how we label people, how we segment them into, you know, rich and poor and in between? Or it might be the race, right? This is my race, and this is where I identify, and this is my race where I identify, and so we end up with our race wars. Or I'm all about wearing the right clothes, having the right purse, having the right physique, and so I'm going to go do all the things I've got to do in order to fit in here. I'll starve myself. I'll work out day after day. I'll do all these things because this is the tribe I want to fit in, or this is the political party I'm going to be a part so that I'm going to, I'm going to do all these things to support that political party because I want to be part of that party, or this particular religion, or this sexual orientation, or this style of music, and on it goes. We're a very fragmented society. We're very tribal, and we defend our tribes because our tribes give us worth and value, but they all demand dues. They all demand dues. They have to be paid in order to be part of that tribe, in order to fit in and belong, whether it's a foodie group or a, a druggy group or whether it's a gang. And isn't it interesting that Jesus comes along and he says, in the midst of all these tribes, I'm going to create my tribe. He calls it the church. And his vision for us is to live in the midst of all these tribes in such a way where we so understand who God has made us and so understand how God has made each other and treat each other that way that all the other tribes look at us and they go, why isn't it like that for us in our tribe? How is it you guys can love each other like that? I want to be loved like that. Let me check out your tribe. See, the church is supposed to be this powerful, attractional force in the world. We're supposed to be heaven on earth. Now, let me get a little personal. The only reason I get personal, by the way, and I've been somewhat vulnerable with you as a church, 
It's not because, say, look at me or because I need pity. Because that's not my reason why. I just know that I sat in church for so many years, heard preachers say things, and then I just sat there and I thought, you don't know what it's really like. You don't know what it's like to go through hard times, live difficult times. You speak platitudes, but you don't know what it's like, and I didn't want to listen to them. And I want you to know that I know something about what it's like. I've told you before, I grew up, I was abused as a kid multiple times in the mission field, and then we came back to the States. It then cut my soul. I've suffered consequences this very day because of what was done. And I have struggled so much to, to accept myself for so many years. I hated who I was, especially in my, in my childhood and student and high school years. And on even into my 20s. I so wanted to belong, but not as a tool. I wanted to be valued for who I was. And when I started out as a kid, we came back to the mission field, and all this stuff was happening in my life. My parents couldn't understand my nervous tics, and my dad used to make fun of me to try to get me to stop. Which then only made me feel worse about myself. And at that time, I was a short, uh, heavyset kid. My mom called me Husky. I had freckles on my face. I had buck teeth. I didn't know how to fit into American culture. I grew up in a tough little town. I was beat up. I was in fights. I was tossed around, made fun of. My coaches, the teachers, I had teachers tell me, you're not smart enough to go to college. I had coaches ask me why I'm so stinking uncoordinated, what's wrong with me. And I just wanted to belong to somebody, to somewhere. And you know, I wanted to ask girls out, but I was afraid to. I finally got enough courage to ask a girl out once in high school, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, I really like you, but I like Gary Copine better. Now, why do I remember that? Because <laughs> we all want to belong. We all want to belong. But here's the saddest thing. I never felt like I could belong to the church. And we went to church Wednesday nights. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday nights. And I hated it. I'll be honest with you. I would count how many rafters were in the roof, literally. And all I would hear at church was how bad I was, how condemned I was, and how I was going to go to hell because the kinds of things that I was dealing with, with since childhood made me feel so guilty and so sinful. So I never felt love in the church. I never felt accepted in the church. I never felt like the church valued me. I thought the church was just for adults, and most of them were very grumpy people anyway. And it's just like, where can I belong? And it was in high school I decided I'm going to belong to the wrestling team. And I lost a bunch of weight and I got in shape. But I realized there were dues to be paid to belong to that group of wrestlers. Not just in terms of athleticism and exercise and all that goes with it, but, you know, beyond the wrestling mat, if I wanted to hang with those guys, I was going to have to change some of my lifestyle because they were not followers of Christ. And so the question for me was, am I willing to make these changes? Am I willing to do this behind my parents' back in order to belong finally to a group and be accepted by them? And I struggled my whole life long with that until, and God is so good, until I came to college. And I was rebellious my first year of college. You don't even want to know about that. And then I met this beautiful little blonde from Minnesota. And I fell in love with her. It was a God thing. I'm not here to glorify my wife, but both of us agreed last night after I told the story, and I've told parts of it before, that this is an act of God. I got a minute left and five minutes more to go. Are you guys okay with that? All right. There's no game this afternoon. It's important, right? Okay. <clears throat> last night, there were like 10 people here. But anyway, um, I think there's 20. Uh, I met Marcia, and, and I, I just... I fell in love with her, and I'll shorten the story up real quick to simply say this. All of a sudden, 
I met somebody for the first time in my life who valued me for who I was. Who accepted me for who I was. I never thought someone like her would ever want to be with someone like me. Honestly, I didn't. I had so much insecurity, so much self-hatred, I was just convinced. But it was a long shot to ask her out. I was shocked she went out with me. And I was shocked that she cared about me. Now, don't get me wrong. And here's, the, here's why I'm telling you this story. I'm driving to a point. Ready? I had a lot of rough edges when she met me. And she was never afraid to tell me that that behavior was wrong. And that, that's something I couldn't do if I was going to be with her. And these are the changes that would have to be made. She had no problem telling me that. She still has no problem telling me that. And it was okay for her to tell me that. Why? Because I knew that she loved me. I knew that she cared about me. That's what the church must become. There are going to be people, and there are people who come our way, that means into our community or into your life, who believe and practice, have a lifestyle, have an attitude that is not in agreement with the Bible but you still love them because you know they created the image of God. They just don't know it yet. And while we can agree to disagree with each other, we still need to be willing to defend each other and protect each other and speak well of each other and pray for each other and serve each other, even when we are on opposite sides of an issue. Only then will people who are struggling with those things feel like, yes, change could happen. And if change never happens, we still love them anyway, right? And yet, we just, we just, in our culture right now, what's happening as a church is we're either running from it and condemning as we run, or we, we're being silent about it because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings and, and you know, get in trouble, or we accommodate. And the world doesn't need any of that. What people need is someone who just loves them Rational people are okay with the fact that you may not agree with them, but just love me, value me. See, my value, my value, listen, isn't my income, isn't my sexual orientation, my value isn't my race, my value isn't my language, my value isn't my skills, my value isn't my looks, my value is I am in the image of God. That's my value. And the secular world doesn't get it, so we've got we've to show it. And listen, it starts, it just starts with us. It just starts with us learning to love each other. And I, I, I'm telling you, I have to work at that. I've got to work harder at that. And as we learn to love each other unconditionally, we've got enough issues just ourselves as believers, right? <laughs> then we become so attractional to the world. I have one more thought, but I'm, I'm running short on time. We'll give it to you real quick. That is, I need to see others in light of God's face. That's pretty profound. I need to see you in light of God's face. You know, it takes that light reflecting the mirror. Remember that story when Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he's with God 40 days. He comes back down in the Old Testament and it says his face shone so brightly they said, cover it up, Moses, it's too bright. Where was that glow coming from? He'd been in the presence of God. Last weekend I said we're going to have to learn to be still in the presence of God. I talked about doing it through prayer. You and I need to be long enough in the presence of God that his image is coming out of us. And you and I have got to get to the point when we look at other people's lives and faces, even though they may be on the opposite side of an issue from us, I need to be able to still see God in them, the hope of God in them. 
what they could be if they came to know him. I love these verses. I'll close with them. Romans 8 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So what Paul's saying is Jesus came on this world and died on the cross. He died our death so we could live his life. He came to make it possible for the image of God to be restored in our lives, that which is fractured and marred by sin. Now look what it says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So for us as believers, life is a journey. He's coming to my life, and my whole life long, God wants to make me more and more like the image of his Son. Really, if you think about it, the image we've been created in is manifested in Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus, and that's who God wants you to be. Look what he says in Galatians. This is so awesome. He says, because you are his son's daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Look what he says. He says, I'm not asking you to live in my image on your own. You can't. But I have sent into your heart the Holy Spirit. I've come into your heart, and if you'll let me, I'll conform you to my image. If you'll let me. If you let me take all the circumstances of your life, Dale, all the things that happened to you as a kid, all that you've been through, if you let me do it, I'll make you into my son's image. And the same thing is true in your life and my life. In the lives of our students, whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, if you let God, he'll use it to shape you into the image of his son. Amen.